this time each and every Friday morning. It is time for the weekly update. Malcolm Honline is the executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us from the holy city of Jerusalem, Mr. Honline. Shalom. Welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, Shalom Lachem. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Well, it's, it, it sounds like you've acclimated nicely to I that am, country. I'm trying to learn to talk like the taxi drivers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You've met a lot of those, I would guess, over the last couple of weeks. And I'm going to certainly tune in to Mayor's uh, show, because if anybody can explain the elections to me, I would certainly welcome it. Isn't it something? Every development all night long. It's incredible. You, you can't go to sleep because you'll miss something. It, it is so true and so true. And by the way, speaking of missing something, I am sure the only regret you have about being in Israel, you will not be able to be at the Yeshiva University Maccabees semifinal championship game today at 12 noon at the Max Stern Athletic Center as they continue to represent the Jewish people so nicely both on and off the court. I'm sure that's your only regret about being in Israel. For sure. Well, we were able to we were, we were able to focus on the fact that he'll be Pesach in Puerto Vallarta. I don't know if he would have been in Washington Heights today for the game, though. That I can't guarantee anybody. Uh, but I know you do wish everybody there the best of luck. Uh, all right, speaking of luck, you need a little bit of luck to be able to fully comprehend what's happening with the Israeli election. We'll start with the news from yesterday. Uh, there is a concerted effort. I mean, that, now it's really obvious. I think you could have said this at any point in the last few months. Uh, but now it's rather obvious that there are people getting together, uh, political parties and individuals who no, would not necessarily be seen as a natural uh, partners who are getting together specifically to try to topple the prime minister and to derail his opportunity, meaning the prime minister's opportunity, to form another uh, a government um, once the election of April the 9th is over. So let's start with that. What could you tell us about this new political relationship between Benny Gantz and... Um, and um, what's Lapid's first name? Give me a second. <laughs> Yair and Yair Lapid, thank you. What can you tell us about this <laughs> development? So, uh, first of all, I think you make an important point that there are people who have personal agendas, national agendas, people who want political change, people obviously looking for power, who are motivated. Um, you know, after so many years in office, Netanyahu has detractors um, and many supporters. I think it's people should be careful not to jump on the reaction to the particular announcement or any announcement or any candidacy or because there are blips and then they come back down to lower levels. We saw it during the Republican primary. Remember how many there was a candidate of the day and then right. the next one and the next one. And now with this announcement, which is very powerful, of the merger of Yair Lapid and Gantz's party with three former chiefs of staff on the top of the ticket, uh, Ashkenazi, and Gantz himself, of course, and uh, Boogie Alon. Uh, so the prime minister's argument that he's the security prime minister can be challenged on those grounds. Um, the the numbers that are reflected now range, I've seen all sorts of estimates just this morning, from 36 seats for the new party to, to 30 seats to 27. There are various uh, estimates on on uh, what the Likud would be. It will be a hotly contested race. Uh, I I I am concerned about when it gets this tight and this close that many things happen. There are all sorts of mergers going on with smaller parties. Everybody had to do it yesterday because they had to file the lists yesterday. That was the deadline. That's why they had the overnight sessions and everybody uh, cooking it up until the the last minute. 
Um, and then there are reports, people like Eli Yashai running alone. Many veterans are gone. Uh, many of the people that traditionally uh, foreigners, Americans who, who had been in Knesset to largely be gone. Um, and we'll see which new ones get added. But clearly it's going to be very contested. Um, we'll see if the new right party of Bennett is able to coalesce together with the old Bayat Yehudi, with Otsmat, the Likud, under the Likud's leadership. Will the right block get to 60? It's not just what they get. The real key is who can present a coalition government of 60 votes, 61, to have a majority in the Knesset. That means the Arabs as well have to say that they will support one or the other, or they stay out. And um, I think that there are two Arab parties running now, that some consolidated, and a lot of the older people have decided not to run. Uh, so there will be new faces. I think the Likud list is considered a strong one with Yuli Edelstein and Sire and Erdan and others at the cats at the top of the list. Um, but they're going to be they're going to be in for a very tough fight. And there's also the element of fatigue. You know that you've had the same party in power for ten years. Um, but judging by cab drivers, I think Netanyahu is stronger than the polls indicate. Speaking to people, I think that it will be a toss up, but. Give it a chance. Let's see how, the, when the dust settles on the new party, what people, whether people will go for what they know, and by and large, are think the economy is doing pretty well. Certainly, the security is is doing pretty well, is is good, and the challenges are great. As, uh, I hope I have a chance to talk about what we witnessed when we went to, down to the south. Amazing things, sure. uh, and on the north, so. It's it's a it's a, a transitional period I think within the election, and too much too early to make predictions. Um, Rafi Peretz is now the head of Bayad UD, correct? Right. And he's so now, so now there is an official Bayad UD Likud arrangement. Would that be a good way of saying it? That there there is a there is an understanding between them, right? Right. And well, people should understand because the system is so foreign to Americans, where we're used to two parties. Well, it's actually moving towards that again here, where you have the two blocks, the two major blocks, and the others are marginal more or less. They become contributors if it's in if the numbers are tight. They become more important and then leverage their positions. But even from merits from the left or other parties from the right became uh, more marginalized, and you have two major blocks, the the, um, the blue and white uh, um, Lapid block and the Likud uh, block on the, on the right. But the people understand that if you don't get 3.5% of the votes, your votes are lost. Right. You, you don't get anything. It's not like they shift us up. So they make deals within parties. So two parties say whoever has the most votes in order for, the, for those votes not to be lost by being under the threshold, then they, they come together. And many parties do that um, to, to in order to save the votes and people not feel that they're, you know, voters, they're going in there and vote for a party that the polls show will not make it. Uh, then uh, this way, at least their votes will still count. But but from the but from the other perspective, meaning the perspective of the major party, right? We understand why a smaller party, as you just explained, would want to be part of that coalition. But Netanyahu, for instance, brings in Bayit Yehudi or makes guarantees to, uh, you know, to other smaller parties, including you know Baruch Marzal, etc. 
because he, he desperately at this point, especially looking at blue and white's numbers, he he has to do whatever he can to bring a significant number together with his coalition, right? I made this point to Mayor earlier this morning, and I'm not sure I'm right about this, and he's also not sure I'm right about it, but it, it seems that right now, let's say the polls are right for a second, it seems right now, if it was April 9th, and that you know margin would be as large as they're predicting right now, 36 to 30 or 37th or whatever it is, I, I think with those types of numbers, it would be hard for the president of Israel not to give blue and white an opportunity to form a government. And now Netanyahu has no choice but to try to stem that tide and, and make those numbers you know, between the right and left coalitions as close as possible. Would that be the, the reason behind this strategy of reaching out to the smaller parties the way he is right yeah, now? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, uh, the uh, concern on part of many in the Likud is that Rivlin, whose relationship with Netanyahu is not good, right. uh, would not hesitate to give the other side a chance to form the party. Uh, but he will go and do it, I think, straight by the numbers and then whoever can show that, you know, that he has to call in the heads of all the parties and ask them who they're going to go with and whoever it looks apparent like, could, could be able to form a government. It doesn't mean that you have the most votes. We've had times when Labor had more votes. Right. Or more seats in the Knesset, but it was Likud who could put together the coalition and therefore had the government. But again, as uh, I remember that, that was by the slimmest of margins, like a 32-30 or 31-30, like that. It's always very close. Right. It, it was not like they're predicting right now. So if anybody wonders why Netanyahu is courting people like those that they are referring to as Kahana's students or Bayat Yudi, etc., that is the reason. And and interestingly enough, um, the, the, it's very possible that if blue and white, just like we've seen in the past from the quote-unquote left, that if they do get more votes and a significant number of more seats, it's still very possible that to the naked eye, they're not going to be able to form a government. They're not going to be able to you know, to come up with another gr- block or group that's going to get them to 60 or over. But nonetheless, as you just pointed out, because of the, the atmosphere now in Israeli politics, especially between the president and prime minister, that may not matter. He still may go ahead and as a default give an opportunity to the left to do so. But remember, the Arabs don't have to join the government in order to say that they will favor a government formed by any of the parties. Uh, that So th- those votes still count in that regard. You don't and, need to get to 61 officially? You could get to 61 unofficially? No, but meaning... No, 61 who say that they will support this government. Right. They don't have to be in the government in order to do it. And some of the religious parties... You know, voted with the could doesn't mean that they necessarily had to go into the government and be part of the government. There's some parties that have a, a shita a policy not to do so. I didn't even realize that. So that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm calling unofficial, so to speak. Like you just said, you know, voting with them without really being part of it. That would be enough for uh, for the left to form. It's an interesting time, I'll tell you. And and I, I assume Prime Minister Netanyahu saw this coming. In the last, I know it's it's sudden as politics goes, but still, the last week or two, there were some indications this would happen, right? There were indications that there were negotiations going on, and the last minute it broke off, and then it it came back. I think it surprised everybody that they were able to pull it off at the last minute. Though there were ongoing negotiations and discussions, and you know this rotational prime minister foreign minister uh, agreement. Um, a lot of people don't believe it works. It was tried before. It's, it's very complicated. And if they, and then there's talk of a national unity government between the could and them. Um, that too would become more complicated. Will you have rotation between Netanyahu and um, Gans, or between Gans, Netanyahu, and and 
appear. I mean, it would be very complicated in any in any event. It's the nature of Israeli politics. Right. By the way, are, that's are why that's why we re- we really shouldn't even call it the Lapid side. We really should call it the Gon side. He gets the first shift, right? He gets the first two and a half years. He gets the first shift, right? Yeah. And then it would be Lapid if the government, I mean, does Lapid even think that a government can last, you know, three, four years in Israel, which is interesting in, in itself, you know, whether, whether in fact he, he could even serve for those full two and a half, and we know how Israeli politics usually goes. And, um, and then the reaction of Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, here's the quote. We have been through this twice before. Left-wing generals posing as right-wingers, they talk about national unity and turn over the government to the policies of the left. In 1992, we got Yitzhak Rabin, the disaster of Oslo. 99, Barak and the Second Intifada. Suicide bombings on buses and over a 1,000 Israelis killed. And then he continues, when I'm prime minister, you're not afraid of getting on a bus or sitting at restaurants. I mean, I know that he plays the security card. This, I, I think he overdid the drop on this. What do you think of his reaction? It's politics. It's it's nothing. Nothing is unusual or out of the bounds in these days. I mean, there are a lot of things being said, and I frankly have made public statements uh, urging that people be careful because this is going to be a heated race. That they should um, uh, people should should be careful, politicians, leaders, because whatever they say in Israel, there's a megaphone to the United States and the rest and of the world. And the rest of the world, of course. But um, right now, I was just thinking in right. terms of um, the U.S., where you get so much reporting, and the Europeans, too, I should say, who cover everything. I mean, there's so much coverage of the race here in the European media that I see here in Israel. Uh, you know, it, it's surprising because they don't cover races in other countries in the way that they do uh, with such uh, depth here. And the, the um, yeah, so anything... That is said. I think people should be careful. They should censor themselves. Be sensitive to to what the words mean abroad, because the election will come and go, but the impressions last. And then the, you know these words will be used again and again against Israel. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners' sponsored digital radio, around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel network, and of course on the beloved. NSN app. All right, now now you got to now you got to give us uh, some inside information, Malcolm. Uh, you know that last Friday you told us that early this week uh, you and the group conference of president would get presentations from a whole variety of political figures, government officials, etc. In Israel, tell us how that went. Uh, it actually went very well. It was led by Netanyahu and President Rivlin and Bennett and others spoke. Um, and they're very articulate. And Netanyahu gave a 35-minute address with charts, with you know, in-depth information about the economy, about other things. Um, it was a very confident uh, Netanyahu. Uh, I think that the um, you know the election certainly was an overlay, but we didn't let it dominate the discussions, which dealt with all of the domestic issues, international issues. Uh, we spent time with the new mayor of Jerusalem and the Jerusalem City Council and toured the hot spots of Jerusalem, which is really quite remarkable when you're reminded of Iman and all the areas that, that are being challenged, how close they are and what the real reality on the ground is. Uh, and we went to the Mount of Olives where Minister Elkin and others joined us for a review of what was happening there. Uh, and we went to the south where we saw for the first time the first group ever to be invited to the Air Force Base with F-35s and to see them and meet the pilots and even see a takeoff, which is extremely powerful. We also uh, were briefed at um, the Rain Base by the deputy commander of the Gaza. And then 
at the border. We went actually to the border, and again, a first time, and we saw the construction of the barrier. And Nahum, no matter what image you have of it, what you think, that it is so impressive and so overwhelming. And you see the machinery Israel had to buy. And what kept going through my head is, how does this little country afford all these things? Unbelievable. They have to buy these jets. They have to buy the their building bases. And this is such a complex thing, building this. <clears throat> it's largely concrete above the ground and then 100 meters below ground, steel and concrete uh, barriers to stop the tunnels and to protect the, you know, the kibbutzim and the communities that are on the other side. I mean, they literally come within meters of the, of the, um, the border. And the, you know, the riots every Friday, the continuing flying of kites and, and balloons, and the other threats, again, not to be dismissed because they do incredible amounts of damage, let alone when rockets are fired. And to see all the infrastructure and all the things, and then during the week to see the other side, how much is being invested, the high-tech, the, the educational programs, the, the challenges in the region, good and bad, in opportunities that exist, Israel's outreach to the world. We had every possible perspective that you can imagine in the course of a, of a day, and we had at the foreign ministry six concurrent sessions, the presenters about all of the issues that are are likely and are now and are likely to be on the tops of our agenda, and a panel of uh, Sharansky and Daniel Gordis and Rosner, I mean, to see the quality of minds, the thinking, uh, a lot of concern about relationships with American Jewry and diaspora Jewry generally, uh, to see panels of people who are talking about Israel's future, who are thinking into the future already, uh, I mean, really incredible. To, to um, we've had, of course, the Knesset Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee and and people from uh, the Yuli Edelstein, the Speaker of the Knesset, and the U.S. Special Envoy uh, Mladenov. So people got a complete perspective. Would you, when you get it in this concentrated dose, you realize the complexity of Israel's situation, the many challenges, the uh, incredible things that are being done, and the opportunities to do much more, especially in concert. Of, with American and, and jury, and to a lesser degree, European jury. Residents of the of the small cities, uh, towns that you alluded to along the border, must be thrilled. That might be the wrong word, uh, but you get my point. Uh, that, that that this whole process is being accelerated in terms of the barrier. Uh, some of those tunnel, yes. some of those tunnels ended up in their own backyards, as as we've discussed on the air. So, and and are so sophisticated, and so we were shown some of the inside films about the discoveries in the north and things that, uh, the extent that they are, the 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 um, techno- technology involved with electricity, air conditioning, communication systems in them, and and they are literally in their backyards. I mean, it's not you're not yeah. talking big distances. When you when you actually see it on the ground, and we we ended up in Beersheba that night and had an, a really wonderful dinner, and we even heard from some of the Bedouin leaders, we heard from the university president, to see how much is happening. And again, anywhere you go, anywhere in Yerushalayim, as in the outskirts of Jerusalem today, on in in the Negev, you see cranes everywhere, building everywhere. Everywhere, every city in in Beersheba, tremendous development that's going on. We met at the Water Employment Center and see what programs are going on to attract young people to find employment for those who live there. 
but new housing going up and and suburban villages around it, uh, communities around it, everywhere. I mean, in Yushalayim, you look out of the top floor of the hotel and and you see the national bird, the crane, yeah. everywhere. Pretty amazing. Uh, Malcolm Holmline from Jerusalem. Uh, one of the other things in this review, which I just loved, that, that you went through everything that you were able to experience on this on this mission. Uh, one of the things that really scares me is what you just mentioned about the the relationship uh, between Jews in Israel and Jews of the diaspora. Uh, now in 2019, I think we're experiencing something that likely our parents and grandparents never experienced before. Um, and that is the, the what seems to be more of a divide uh, in certain areas. Uh, the more Jews become politically inclined in this country, I think they're becoming more and more entrenched with certain types of candidates and policies, many of them um, different than what Jews who live in Israel, and especially Anglos who live in Israel, would prefer. It, it worries me. It concerns me. And I know that this is it what... Should con- it should concern you, but let me give you some comfort. I'm going to cite a poll... That said, compared to ten, five to ten years ago, do you feel more positive, negative, or about the same towards Israel? The result is 55% the same, 26% more positive. So together, that's 81%, and 19% said more negative. And, and more people said they felt more positive about Israel now than said uh, the other, contrary to people's uh, image. And they asked them, do you feel the expansion of Israeli settlements make you feel uh, positive about uh, Israel? Negative result, 48% said it had no impact. 32% negative, 19% positive. And guess who did the survey? Yeah. J Street. So anybody who thinks this was a right-wing thing, J Street poll done in 2018. And uh, I, I think that that should give uh, a source of comfort, not because of J Street, but because you know that they're not a result they necessarily were looking for. But uh, I think it's it's really uh, a remarkable statement. And so while we know of the disaffection and there are real problems and we have to reach out to our young people, we have to do much more in terms of education. Both sides have to be educated about the other. The fact is that those numbers tell a different story. Uh, the The point then being no matter what the dissension might be now, bottom line, or push come to shove, American jury in the majority is going to be there for Israel. I assume that's the point, right? That is definitely a point, and I think, um, uh, moreover, they, they looked last night at the space launch. They have pride in Israel. When they see that Israel, Israel could be the fourth country to land on the moon, when they see so many things that... Uh, that happened. And even the election shows that Israel is a vibrant democracy where everybody can vote. And the, uh, you know, they look around the world and you see the problems that communities everywhere are having with the growth of anti-Semitism, the sharp increase in anti-Semitism, and the threats coming from Iran and, and how other countries like Venezuela are, are, are suffering under it. We, we look at Israel and say, look, with all of the problems, with all the incredible challenges that that they face now from uh, every border. Look at how, what they've done and, and carrying all of this incredible uh, expense. The challenges are really real. The, the um, Israelis now think that the Assyrian S-300 air defense system is probably operational. And we've seen the the um, story about the ISIS fighters who flee into Iraq with hundreds of millions of dollars but are still intact. And of course, well, Israel's not their primary target. It is certainly one of them. 
and the the uh, the the challenge of Iran and all of its manifestations, whether it's the recent meeting between Putin, uh, to, uh, Erdogan of Turkey, and uh, the President Rouhani of Iran coming together and, and talking about working together and what their ultimate designs can't be ones that that we're going to be um, very happy with and, and these developments and the Iranians are are um, uh, you know being more and more threatening more visible with their threats their presence in in Africa which we saw last week and the threat that perceived by many leaders but certainly their presence in in South America and the aggressiveness. And the formation of these um, coalitions is very frightening about what the future is. But yeah, the strongest party and the one carrying all the others in the Middle East today, all of our other allies, is Israel. Yeah, which is unbelievable. Uh, what happened this week with Poland and Israel? So the situation has deteriorated a little bit because the foreign minister also made some comments, quoting something Shamir said, the fight is over the law. Uh, and Netanyahu made a comment about it on the plane, and that was picked up, and the, and the Prime Minister of Poland uh, canceled his visit as part of the Visegrad group that was supposed to come. But uh, uh, I'll just say something on that in a second. But the, the fight is over the law in Poland that says you can't say Polish uh, concentration camps or about Polish complicity, that you have to say it, it was German concentration camps imposed on, and it's true, many Poles were victims and many Poles were righteous, but many Poles were complicit, and that is uh, something that would be punishable. So the summit of the Visegrad group um, stopped after Poland withdrew to protest uh, uh, these comments, but I should note that Hungary is going to open a trade office in Jerusalem, and the leaders of other countries in the Visegrad uh, group did decide to come to Israel despite the, uh, the, the these tensions, and a large group of them were here, and several uh, people announced intentions to uh, Slovakia's Prime Minister, uh, Pellegrini, announced the opening of a cultural and trade center in, in Jerusalem, and all these are supposedly precursors to the opening of an embassy, uh, God willing, before too long. Are American troops, as opposed to what the prime with the prime minister, are American troops as opposed to what the president of the United States originally said, actually staying in Syria? Uh, are they say it again? The American troops. It seems like the President Trump, who had said American troops are withdrawing from Syria, mm-hmm. now now in fact a certain number are going to remain, and on top of that, other countries have been asked to voluntarily participate and keep a coalition of troops there as well. That's true. We have asked others, and they have not agreed to do so. Uh, the American presence there is very vital, even though it's a small number of troops, and it'll be a stage withdrawal probably. And we still will have our Air Force, which is of primary importance. Uh, but the physical presence is very important, and we see the designs. That's part of what I was talking about, Iran design, let's say, in Syria and working to establish control over bigger areas, uh, replacing the population with uh, Shuni, Sunni, sh- the Sunni population with Shiite um, uh, people, uh, to, which changes then the whole uh, complexion and something that we have discussed here uh, quite ex- extensively uh, with uh, experts, military and security and other experts about all of these challenges in the region. So the American presence is seen as a symbolic gesture on one part, you know, very important statement of our commitment, uh, U.S. commitment, and the um, uh, president's indication that he wants to withdraw uh, U.S. troops. 
So we have to see if it, if it in fact, is implemented, what, what substitutes, how do we support our allies? Do we abandon them? Do the Kurds then turn to the Russians or to, to others uh, for, for an alliance because they know they can't stand alone against uh, these forces? It's a, a situation great flux, and, and America's role there is uh, very critical. What do you think of the uh, German president? I, I don't know. It's being painted as praise, but acknowledging the Iranian revolution, one, of course, that has led to the situation now in the Middle East. It's, uh, it's disturbing, especially coming from Germany, the same week when the French president, Macron, says anti-Zionism is a modern form of anti-Semitism and um, that they will take steps to define it officially. You have the president of Germany saluting the biggest anti-Semitic country and the one that, that engages most in, in the denial of Israel's right to exist. Uh, and and it is disturbing. It, it isn't, there's nothing to salute from the revolution. Uh, there's nothing to celebrate. For the people, just look in, in January, I think there were between 250 and 300 demonstrations against the Iranian government because people are fed up with the, the conditions and with the situation, and the United States is continuing to add uh, sanctions. We're also doing them against Turkey. It looks like um, the president this week blocked the sale of the F-35 to Turkey because they are going ahead with the purchase of the Russian S-400 missile defense system. And the United States, and as a member of NATO, Turkey uh, has been warned repeatedly that the the S-400 compromises their defense systems. It gives them the Russians' ability to spy on everything, to get information on everything that is going on. And so we suspended uh, uh, the delivery of of our weapons. But the the growth in Europe, the numbers in Europe are continued to be astounding. The desecration of 80 tombstones in France and then the big demonstration uh, to respond to it. It's very nice there are demonstrations, but we have to have much more. There has to be much more concerted action. We have to find out who's doing it. They've got to be prosecuted and held to account. And we have to start putting ourselves on the line. And the French, the French Jews turned, uh, French people, but many Jews also turned down in the many thousands for a demonstration against anti-Semitism is very important. By the way, by the way, I mean, you're in Israel, but I'm sure you heard what happened last Shabbos in Brooklyn. Um, people have asked me if, in fact, being very impressed, by the way, with the organized Jewish community and the president of France uh, doing what they did last week or this week, uh, people have asked me, should there be some type of rally, some type of, uh, uh, you know, leadership get-together, uh, in addition to what, to what Mayor de Blasio did, uh, in the Brooklyn area, in the New York area, in the United States in general, to respond to those types of attacks? Are we looking at those as, and I know that you don't always address local stuff, but are we looking at those as isolated episodes, or would you prefer if, in fact, we took to the streets with some words uh, about support for the Jewish community? So uh, they may be isolated, but they're not unrelated, that there is an atmosphere here, and if people feel that it's open season, then no matter the most minor incident or a major one, whether it's a cemetery, a synagogue, or an individual, all are very serious. I, I, I take them all very seriously. I do hope that we will have a national manifestation, which we are working on, um, and as somebody who has more, brought more people into the streets for demonstrations probably than anybody, uh, I believe very strongly in it, but it has to be done right, and we have to know the target. We have to know who, who are we addressing, what is it we want to change, and, 
and it has to be a success. It has to be an overwhelming expression. And so we are looking at various options, and I have talked to many of the most important people in, the, in our country uh, about it, and I found generally broad support. We all feel frustrated, you know, and, and individual incidents are like a dripping a faucet. So each drop is right. lost, but you, you get used to it, and then you need a stronger flow of water and stronger, stronger. That's the lesson of history. We, we have seen that repeatedly, and you've got to stand up. And I have to say, the new legislation, we saw Congress overwhelmingly pass legislation. Uh, we met with Elon Carr while during our conference, the new special envoy, and he is really a terrific spokesman and committed to, to, to fighting it. And you have Ken Marcus. We have others in the administration who are um, you know, working on this, uh, Senator Brownback, who deals with religious freedom, is a, also a great friend. Uh, so, you know, there is a commitment. Congress certainly has expressed it in these overwhelming votes backing anti-BDS measures. But, and and true on the state and local levels, and there we see those who are trying to argue that it limits freedom of speech. This is not so. It certainly has been addressed in, in many in many places. The legislation, even in Congress, was adjusted, and still some people, including a senator from New York, does not has not come out in support of it. It's not acceptable. We have to have absolute standards where people have to put themselves on the line, and it's not just to come out and say we that we decry anti anti-Semitism, maybe even anti-Zionism. I want them to stand up and say we're going to prosecute, we're going to legislate, we're going to denounce, we're going to go after those in universities that tolerate it are going to be held to account, and law law uh, people who legislate, people who enforce the law, all have a role to play here. Listen, um, based on what you're saying, it, it sounds like you're anticipating some type of national expression uh, of all this sometime in the first half of 2019. Would that be an accurate way of putting it? Very accurate. Okay, good. That's great to know. And certainly keep us up to date on that. We're way behind schedule, but i got to ask you two quick things. What do you think of Luciana's uh, resignation from the Labor Party in Great Britain? A very important statement. Uh, sent shockwaves. I watched some of the British news to, to see the reaction and the fact that you've had breakaways of large blocks of voters from from uh, the party. But the very fact that there was a, a poll done that showed that 35% of the voters see Brooke Corbyn as an anti-Semite. Right. Then they should get him the hell out of there. They right. shouldn't be running. Right. It's not enough just to say we, we denounce him. And what these individual members made, uh, did is an important statement. We should not uh, diminish it. That's important because it's a courageous step to say I'm leaving the party and taking and putting myself on the line, but but it's outrageous that this guy still can remain as head of the Labor Party. Right, understood. And finally, Tzipi Livni leaving Israeli politics. Any reaction? Um, well, it's an interesting development. Uh, I think it's largely situations uh, she often created for herself, uh, and uh, I, I did not see. You know, immense mourning or reaction to her <laughs> departure. <laughs> that's that's probably accurate. Um, next week, back in the United States, correct? God willing. And good luck to Yeshiva University today, Malcolm. Absolutely. <laughs> do us <laughs> do us do us proud, Yeshiva University Maccabees. I'm sure you will. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joined us from Israel, Jerusalem, on this erev Shabbos here at JM in the AM.